Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas says 26 federal laws are being waived. Texas Public Radio's Gage Davila reports this is to fast-track construction of parts of a border wall in southern Texas. Mayorkas says he is waiving the laws to restrict migrant crossings between ports of entry in the Rio Grande Valley. The administration will use funds from a 2019 appropriation designated by Congress to construct new portions of a border wall initiated under a federal disaster declaration issued by former President Donald Trump. Some of the construction will cut through a national wildlife refuge. Lake and Jordal is with the Center for Biological Diversity. They know that if they didn't waive these laws, they'd have to follow laws like the Endangered Species Act that protect endangered wildlife from extinction. Endangered species like the ones that these walls will likely be ripping through the habitat of. Border wall construction had been on pause since January 2021 when President Biden revoked Trump's disaster declaration. For NPR News, I'm Gage Davila in McAllen, Texas. The campaign to elect a new House Speaker after Kevin McCarthy was voted out of the job is now in full swing. NPR's Deirdre Walsh reports there are two well-known candidates in the race. House Majority Leader Steve Scalise and House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan have officially announced they're running for Speaker. Scalise is the number two leader now and has served years in Republican leadership. Jordan founded the House Freedom Caucus and is heading up investigations into the Biden administration. Both are conservative. Louisiana Republican Garrett Graves says his party needs to avoid another messy election like the one to elect McCarthy. We need to be uh, coming together and, and coalescing around a speaker. I don't think we should go do it out there on the House floor like was done in January where we look like a bunch of idiots. A forum for candidates is scheduled for next Tuesday, and House Republicans are slated to vote on Wednesday. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News. Meanwhile, President Biden is worried the upheaval in the House could affect Congress's ability to pass more aid for Ukraine. Biden says he'll give a major speech on aid to Ukraine, but it's not clear when he'll do this. In Taiwan, more than 75,000 homes have lost power as Typhoon Koinu roared past. The typhoon made landfall on the southernmost part of the Asian island. NPR's Emily Feng tells us one person was killed and more than 300 others were injured. Typhoon Koinu knocked out power to Taiwan's southern cities, and most workplaces and schools there were closed starting Tuesday in preparation for the storm. Several highways remain closed due to the debris caused by the storm, which is now headed towards southern China. This is typhoon season in Taiwan, however, and much of Southeast Asia. Taiwan usually is hit by multiple typhoons every year beginning in the spring, but had avoided direct hits by typhoons for the last four years until this year. NPR's Emily Feng reporting. This is NPR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. The infant mortality rate for black babies in Boston is more than three times higher than that for white babies. That's according to a new report from the Boston Public Health Commission. WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCloskey reports. Boston's infant mortality rate was 4.6 deaths per 1,000 live births, lower than the national rate. But there were big disparities by race and across neighborhoods. Hyde Park had the highest rate of infant deaths, while neighboring Roslindale had the lowest. Dr. Basola Ojukutu is Boston's public health commissioner. I don't think there's been enough work in actually tackling the root cause, whether it be institutional racism within the health and care institution or talking about structural racism and what's impacting the environments in which women live. Ojukutu says her team will study the data to develop programs for improving health among specific populations. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dale McCluskey. 
Governor Maura Healey calls the slowdowns on the new section of the Green Line incredibly frustrating, but she is not providing any new information on how the new track developed issues so quickly. Last week, T officials say they cut speeds on the line after the rails were found to be too narrow in some spots. The line just opened last year. Leaders with the NAACP's Boston branch say they're thrilled with Boston University's new president. Dr. Melissa Gilliam will be the school's first black and first female president. More now from WBUR's Carrie Young. Other black women leading universities in the area include Claudine Gay at Harvard, Paula Johnson at Wellesley, and Lynn Perry Wooten at Simmons. NAACP Boston branch president Tanisha Sullivan says she hopes Gilliam focuses on issues like reducing student debt and maintaining a diverse and inclusive student body at BU. These are issues that she and the team she assembles will need to remain not only actively engaged around, but we're going to need them to lead. Officials with The Ohio State University, where Gilliam is currently vice president and provost, say they're grateful for her service, calling her appointment at BU a, quote, tremendous opportunity. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. Boston University holds the broadcast license for WBUR. A fifth grader from Southboro is pushing to make the blue-spotted salamander the state amphibian. The 10-year-old says Massachusetts is falling behind because more than half of U.S. states have honorary amphibians, but not our state. Conservation officials say the salamander is a threatened species. If approved, they hope the designation would bolster protection efforts. It's 706. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, whose charitable foundation strives to make a positive impact on its communities. More at OceanStateJobLot.com. And AE Events, design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at AEEvents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. The New England Revolution's 16-match home unbeaten streak ended last night. They lost to the Columbus crew 2-1 in Foxborough. The Revs will visit Orlando City SC on Saturday. Tonight, the Bruins visit the New York Rangers for their final exhibition game of the fall. Morning fog and clouds will give way to sun by this afternoon. It'll be in the 70s. Cloudy overnight with a low around 60. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with a chance for morning showers in the 70s. Right now, it's 60 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, supporting creative people and effective institutions committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information is at macfound.org. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. In a world where often only those who can afford a subscription are the ones with access to the most credible, high-quality news sources, WBUR is available to anyone, anywhere, anytime, at no cost. But we can't take our future for granted. Giving monthly is the key to keeping WBUR strong. So help us get to our fall fundraising goal of 2,500 new monthly contributors. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org. Good morning. As you heard right there, we're in our fundraiser, our fall fundraiser. This is the last day. This is the last day we have to raise the money we need to keep WBUR at the level you expect it to be every single morning. And we need to tell you pretty bluntly that we are still behind. We still need a third of the way toward our goal for this 
fundraising round. And we need you to act now when there is a 50 percent match on the table that will increase the amount of your gift by 50 percent. All you need to do to help us right now is WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I should say, though, that that match will end at 10 o'clock. So we only have so long for you to get in on it. And we need you to act now because I think you know that, you know, your morning sets the tone for the day. And that's actually what you do here, um, how it ends up to be um, on these fundraising days. You set the tone for the whole day. If you come in strong they will come in strong the rest of the day, and we will get there. So we need you to set the tone right now and call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shinoy here with Tiziana Deering of Radio Boston. Good morning. You know, um, heck yeah to what you just said. And this this is a time when we do need journalism to be strong. It's such an interesting moment because you can get information everywhere. But where do you go to get facts? And how do you make sure that everyone has the facts we need to move forward in this democracy? We are asking you to help us close this gap. We're behind, but we don't have to be. Mm -hmm. We made strides yesterday. Not enough, but enough for us to know we can do it when you step up at 1-800-909-9287. Take advantage of this 50% match to make your $10 a month become 15 You can also go to WBUR.org. And here's just an example of what listener support does. This is reporter Gabriela Emanuel bringing you deep coverage on the growing number of migrants coming to our state. How we treat strangers, newcomers, has always been a defining characteristic of our country. And it's something Massachusetts is grappling with as our state-funded family shelter system sees a growing number of migrants, many of them fleeing Haiti. This is unprecedented time that requires unprecedented solution. Unprecedented times also require all the new information we can get. I've reported on how families have been turning to emergency rooms simply looking for a roof over their head as they go through the shelter application process. We broke the story about Boston Medical Center closing their lobby doors and sending some families to Logan Airport as a place to sleep until state field offices open. We dissected the record-breaking numbers, the budget challenges, the shelter sites that have no staff at all, and the frustration of town and city officials. We need more help. We really do. We need this to be a little bit more organized. And we've heard from the families themselves, often about their years-long journeys to the U.S. and what it's been like in a whole new country. I believe the real story and the real public dialogue comes only when we know the full situation from a lot of different perspectives. It's that depth and context that WBUR provides to our listeners, our readers, and our whole community. It it is such a pride to hear Gabriella's work on Morning Edition when it's here. It's a really great example of what we bring you, the high-quality journalism, the topics you need to know as a watchdog, yes. But you also heard a voice there in her little little segment right there. And I don't know, this is what I love about radio is you can hear a voice and it just suddenly goes straight to your heart. And you connect with that person because you really hear them. And you can hear them in a way that really resonates with you. And you 
understand them and connect with them. And that can be really hard right now. We are separated. We are isolated in our world. We are trying to find ways to understand each other. This is how you do that through public radio. We need you to act now. When there is a match on the table, give $10 a month. That makes it $15 a month. So it's a 50% match. We need you to act. It ends at 10. We're running out of time. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Northeastern University's Institute for Experiential AI, announcing an AI event October 18th at Northeastern. Leading with AI responsibly explores innovative strategies companies like Google, Fidelity, and Intuit use to transform their business with AI. Tickets at ai.northeastern.edu. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Falden in Washington, D.C. It took just eight Republicans to throw Kevin McCarthy out of the Speaker's office and throw the U.S. House of Representatives into chaos. Some congressional observers say this is a mess that's been in the making for years. So how did the GOP get here, and how does the Republican conference and the House find a path forward? Norman Ornstein has been writing and thinking about Congress and American politics for decades. He's a senior fellow emeritus at the American Enterprise Institute, and he joins me now. Good morning, Norman. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Leila. Great to be with you. So I'd like to refer to something you and Thomas Mann wrote in the Washington Post 10 years ago. In this piece, you said at the time you had no choice but to acknowledge that the core of the dysfunction lies with the Republican Party. So 10 years ago, did you predict what we're seeing now? You know, I pretty much predicted what we saw this week but I wasn't uh, quite as pessimistic in terms of where the country was going to be heading. But what we could see, and uh, you know, I've been around Congress now for more than five decades, worked closely with both parties, know a whole lot of the members. But what Tom Mann and I saw, and both of us were in this uh, situation, was a dynamic that was changing one political party into something that was dysfunctional. Mm. And what we saw back then as well, uh, you know, the uh, Eric Cantor, who uh, was then a part of the leadership team, Kevin McCarthy and Paul Ryan, back in 2010, wrote a book called Young Guns, mm -hmm. uh, taken from the movie of the same name, a new generation of conservative leadership. They didn't even mention their own leader, John Boehner, and they fanned out around the country uh, to bring the Tea Party to Washington. Uh, it basically told them that they were going to uh, affect dramatic changes, cut spending, uh, have big tax cuts, and destroy uh, the system as we had known it. Uh, and those radicals they brought in really believed it, uh, but they didn't accomplish those goals. And ultimately, they turned against their own leaders. Mm -hmm. Eric Cantor was the first to go. Uh, he lost in a primary to a Tea Party radical. Uh, John Boehner, uh, who had been the speaker, uh, basically got forced out uh, uh, with some help from the others. Then Paul Ryan left. And now we saw Kevin McCarthy basically eaten alive because they had helped turn a party into something that was more radical, uh, more distrustful of their own leaders, and frankly has become a kind of cult. So if, and that's what we saw. So if one party, as you describe, 
is some kind of cult, is extreme, as you say. What is the path forward in a House of Representatives that has both and needs both to get pretty much anything done? It's not a very good path for governing. And, you know, what ended up killing McCarthy, and of course, we saw the roots of this directly and immediately back when it took him 15 votes uh, to become speaker, and he had to make concession after concession to his more uh, fringe group. Um, but, you know, that was to get 45 days before we have yet another showdown over shutting down the government. Mm. And uh, part of that uh, effort to even get that vote done meant cutting out funding for Ukraine. We're not looking at a good path ahead. We don't yet know who the uh, replacement will be. We have a temporary replacement right now, Patrick McHenry of North Carolina. But if you look at the two candidates who are out there now, Jim Jordan, who is one of the most radical members and favored by the uh, insurgents who toppled uh, Kevin McCarthy. Uh, and then you've got Steve Scalise, who once defined himself as David Duke without the baggage. We're not looking at a better picture in terms of bringing things together and governing. We're not in a good place as a country right now. Norman Ornstein is a senior fellow emeritus at the American Enterprise Institute. Thank you, Norman, for your time and your insights. Sure. The Mediterranean Sea has become a graveyard for a record number of people so far this year. Yeah, people are risking their lives and hope for a better future in Europe. They flee for various reasons, poverty, conflict, climate change, or persecution. The U.N. estimates that this year alone, over 2,500 people have died on that journey. And the real figure is likely even higher as many boats sink without a trace. NPR's Ruth Sherlock is currently on a search and rescue ship in the Mediterranean. So, Ruth, where exactly are you in the Mediterranean Sea? Well, we are in international waters off the Tunisian coast. I'm on a boat called the MV Geobarrant Ship, which is run by the charity Doctors Without Borders, or MSF. And the reason they're in this area is because there's a lot of smugglers' boats that depart from Tunisia and from Libya to Europe. And now they're here keeping a 24-hour watch uh, from the bridge of the ship for people that are in need of help. And you know, A, the stakes are really high here. These vessels that set off from Libya and Tunisia, they regularly sink. And recently, smugglers from Tunisia have even started sending people towards Europe in these metal ships, and they're even less safe. For example, uh, apparently even a small wave can capsize them. The smugglers send people out there without radios for help, without food even sometimes. Sometimes they drift for days. The staff on this ship have rescued um, hundreds of people. At one point, they even had 600 people on board. And I'm guessing just operating in these particular seas is politically complicated. Right. You know, MSF says their ship here acts like an ambulance service for people in need. But it is really politically difficult. For example, you have in this region the Libyan Coast Guard, which is financed by the European Union as part of their effort to stop migrants from reaching Europe. But they regularly violate human rights as well as international maritime laws. And Fulvia Conte, she's the head of MSF's search and rescue team on board the MVG Barents. She says they even threaten the boats of charities operating in this area. We had a vessel of the Libyan Coast Guard actually approaching Jobarent in a quite aggressive way. And, uh, and yes, it happened also in January that uh, they threatened us, saying, if you don't leave the area, you're going to be exposed to bullet guns. 
She says MSF teams have even been threatened with being shot if they don't leave and that the Libyan Coast Guard's treatment of migrants uh, is even worse. There's recent aerial footage showing the Coast Guard ramming into a boat of migrants so hard that they splintered it to pieces and some 50 people ended up in the water. The Libyan Coast Guard apparently pulled most of those on board and brought them back to Libya, but the migrants there face terrible conditions like detention, torture and savory. So MSF points out this is not a safe destination and that therefore bringing migrants there in this EU funded project is against all kinds of international and maritime laws. What happens to the migrants once they're rescued by MSF? Well, they're cared for by a whole team on board. There's medics, psychiatrists, protection officers, and there's also a midwife, that's Marie-Anne Henri. And she tells me, you know, many of the men and unfortunately possibly a majority of the women she meets have suffered some kind of sexual violence in their journey to reach Europe. She remembered one of her first trips on the geobarrants. She says they rescued three pregnant women. Two of them were pregnant as a result of rape. And I will remember this because the only one who was not due to rape, she is the one who did, uh, unfortunately, a miscarriage on board. She says, you know, one baby has been born on the geobarrants, but sadly she's seen many more miscarriages because of the awful physical conditions women endure at sea. That's NPR's Ruth Sherlock in the Mediterranean Sea. Ruth, thank you very much. Thank you. The world is guzzling more sugary beverages. NPR's Ari Daniel has word of a new study that ranks countries by their intakes. Growing up in Mexico, Laura Lara Castor went to her fair share of social gatherings. Sweet beverages abounded. In my family or in reunions, people would actually drink a lot of these sodas. So I could see like firsthand how it could be contributing to these diseases. Diseases like diabetes and cardiovascular problems. Which to date are the leading causes of death and years lost of disability in many countries. Castor is now a nutrition PhD candidate at Tufts University, and she and her colleagues set out to see how global consumption of sugar-sweetened drinks has changed over the last few decades. Drinks like sodas, energy drinks, juices, and aguas frescas. Castor found that globally, we were slurping up 16% more of these libations in 2018 than we were in 1990, but there were regional differences. The largest increases, like over time, were in the sub-Saharan Africa. Castor has a theory. They are a target for certain food industries, such as soda. She thinks that's because there's more money moving around in some of these countries. Their economies are expanding and the middle class is growing. So there's been more marketing. Also, in, in some countries, the Western uh, diet is like still seen as status. Meanwhile, in 2018, Latin America was the region that consumed the most sugar-sweetened drinks, with Castor's home country of Mexico topping the list. On the flip side, Brazil saw the largest decrease in consumption over that same 28-year span, which, says Castor, could be due to more awareness that sugary drinks can be bad for your health. These findings are published in the journal Nature Communications. The paper, it gives us a real picture of what's happening in terms of sugar consumption. Dr. Ikeola Adoye is an epidemiologist at the University of Ibadan in Nigeria. She says in her country, she sees sugar drinks everywhere. It's not so expensive. It's not seen as harmful to health. So it's widely drunk in Nigeria. 
Beyond educating people, Adeoye argues that policy interventions are key, like warning labels or soda taxes. These approaches have been successful in higher-income countries, which in general have seen the largest decreases in drinking sweet beverages. Ari Daniel, NPR News. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lessons in Chemistry. Oscar winner Brie Larson stars as a chemist who hosts a cooking show proving life doesn't follow a formula. Streaming October 13th on Apple TV+. And the Edward M. Kennedy Institute asking how do we strengthen democracy? An evening with Pew Research Center and national leaders today. emkinstitute.org. Hi, it's Robin Young. WBUR needs more members and member dollars to fuel our journalism. So we're looking for 2,500 listeners to become monthly contributors to give WBUR a strong future. Join us. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org. You're back with the fall fundraiser on WBUR. This is the last day. We run out of time tonight. That's coming up really soon. And we are being transparent and frank with you this morning. We need to say plainly, we are behind and we need your help. We still need to get a third of the way to our goal. We need you to act now and increase your impact. There's a 50% match on the table until 10 o'clock. That adds up fast for WBR. Give $10 a month. That match makes it $15 a month for a year. Give $100 dollars a month and the match makes it 150. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Rescue us before we run out of time. I'm Rupa Shanoi, Morning Edition host here with Tiziana Deering, the great host of Radio Boston. Good morning, Rupa. I'm so glad to be here. I wanted to be here on this last day. I believe so fundamentally in the importance of local news, the importance of WBUR, the importance of NPR. This is the day to ask you to help us close that gap. We know we're behind. We also know we were further behind yesterday, Mm -hmm. and listeners like you stepped up. Just like listeners like you are stepping up this morning and offering a 50% match on their dollar, Mm -hmm. your dollar. They care so much. They're saying, we will add to your money. It's like that somebody saying, you order a coffee, and when you go in, it will be 50% more coffee (laughs) without it costing you any more, because this is so important. That sounds pretty good. It does, right? And the number is quick, 1-800-909-9287. The website is WBUR.org. And the idea is that this is a moment when journalism has to be strong. We are in great uncertainty. We are in some turmoil. And you know you need the facts. You are the ones that make transformation for us just with a little gift. I'm Deepa Fernandez, and I am a co-host of Here and Now. So I grew up in Sydney, Australia, and there were never really any people of colour, any immigrants. Um, People like my family were not journalists. We didn't see them on TV. We didn't hear them on the radio. And when I started college, a professor, he said that I belonged on the campus radio station. As I walked in the door, they looked at me and they said, can you read? And I was a bit confused, but I looked at them and said, uh, yeah. 
And they said, great, because the newsreader didn't show up. Uh, They thrust some copy in my hands and they said, you'll be on in five minutes. And instead of reading that copy in five minutes, I went to the phone and I called my mum and I called my sister and they proceeded to call every Indian in Sydney who then proceeded to call everybody they knew. And in five minutes when that mic went on, I nailed that script and everyone was listening and it spread through the community and it was this amazing thing. And then I realized the power of a microphone I feel like at Here and Now, we tell stories every single day of communities that matter, of people who are part of our society, of people whose voices we need in the conversation, because all voices are necessary to help us all be informed and and make better decisions. To Deepa's point, think about what you get from WBUR. We keep you up to date on how the issues of our time are playing out right around you, whether it's what's happening in the U.S. House right now with the Speaker of the House, whether it's climate change, income inequality, health care. When it comes to all of those issues, they determine the course of our lives. You need a reliable source of information about them. You need to trust that source and support that source. And that is what WBUR does for you right now. You can do that for us. Make sure we will be there in your future, in your community's future. You do that by acting now and helping us meet this goal when we need to before the fundraiser ends tonight because it is ending tonight no matter what. And we need to make the goal that we put out there so we can keep the level of service you expect coming to you every single day. That is what we want to do. We just need your help to get there. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. There is a 50% match on the table only till 10 o'clock. A small amount of money becomes huge for WBUR. It doesn't take long. Do it now at the start of your day. We are asking you to support us. You make the difference. WBUR.org. And thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From the Langloth Foundation, supporting justice, equity, and opportunity for all people to foster and sustain safe and healthy communities. Learn more at langloth.org. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Republican Congressman Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan are in the running to replace Kevin McCarthy as House Speaker. NPR's Windsor Johnston says GOP lawmakers are planning to vote on McCarthy's successor next week. Jordan and Scalise are both pledging to unify House Republicans following the ouster of Kevin McCarthy this week. Scalise, the House Majority Leader, appears to have broad support among the party, while Jordan, a member of the Hard Right Freedom Caucus, will face the challenge of winning over moderates. The stakes are high as Congress faces another deadline to reach an agreement on a long-term government spending bill next month. 
Eight Republicans, led by Matt Gates of Florida, joined Democrats to oust McCarthy as House Speaker. A memorial service will be held today outside City Hall in San Francisco for the late Senator Dianne Feinstein. The California Democrat died last week at the age of 90. Vice President Harris and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer are expected to deliver remarks at the service. Mourners lined up inside City Hall yesterday to pay their respects to Feinstein as they filed past her casket draped with an American flag. Feinstein was the longest-serving female senator, having first been elected in 1992. This year's Nobel Prize in Literature has been awarded to Norwegian writer Jon Fossa. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Holyoke police are investigating a shooting that killed a newborn baby. Investigators say bullets from a nearby shooting yesterday afternoon hit a pregnant woman sitting on a bus. The child was delivered but later died. Investigators say three suspects are in custody. They don't believe the woman was the target of the shooting. Lawmakers on Beacon Hill are considering a bill aimed at protecting nurses and other health care providers from violence in the workplace. State Senator Joan Lovely, a Democrat from the North Shore, is the bill's sponsor. Speaking at a hearing yesterday, she called patient assaults against health care workers an epidemic of violence. My sister is a 30-year emergency room nurse. She's seen it all. She's shared with me um, incidents, particularly to her, to nurse friends. And we really do think that our healthcare settings need to do more to be able to protect the very people that are caring for the patients that come through their door. The proposed legislation calls on hospitals and other healthcare facilities to develop and implement programs to minimize the danger of workplace violence to both employees and patients. This week's Mass Black Expo is meant to find ways to build black wealth in Massachusetts. WBUR Samantha Kutzia tells us more. The annual event is meant to showcase black businesses in the city. The theme of this year's expo is building black wealth. Nicole Obie is president and CEO of the Black Economic Council of Massachusetts, which hosts the event. She says factors like housing and transportation all contribute to growing black wealth. Health affects wealth. And if you are dying in your prime working years, if you're sick and you can't support your family, it really does affect our ability to grow and grow our generational wealth and to help to contribute to the economy. The event runs through Sunday. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Samantha Kutzia. It's 734. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, advancing medicine, nursing, and science together. More on their culture of collaboration at umassmed.edu together. The 16-match home unbeaten streak for the New England Revolution is over. They lost to the Columbus crew last night in Foxborough 2-1. The Revs will visit Orlando City SC on Saturday. Tonight, the Bruins will visit the New York Rangers for their final exhibition game of the fall, the Bees' regular season begins next Wednesday. Highs in the upper 70s today with some foggy spots this morning. Then mostly overcast skies will gradually clear. Tonight it grows cloudy again as it falls to a low around 60. Tomorrow we end the week with a mostly cloudy day with a high in the low 70s. Right now it's 60 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work with online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. And from Indeed, 
designed to be an end-to-end -end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. Pakistani officials have announced that all undocumented migrants must leave the country by November 1st. Pakistan's interior minister said those that do not leave by the deadline will have their property and assets seized and face arrest and deportation. Pakistan has taken in hundreds of thousands of migrants from neighboring Afghanistan in the last few years. Around 1.7 million unregistered Afghans are currently living in the country. Some have been in Pakistan for decades. For more on this, we're joined now by journalist Amir. Ahmed Qureshi, who is in Islamabad. Um, so what's the reason why Pakistan is doing this and, and why now? I think a lot of it uh, has to do with the politics uh, and the relationship between these two countries. And I think it's at the lowest point right now. There's a lot of tension between these two countries, uh, things that have to do with Pakistani militants who are operating, according to Pakistani officials, inside Afghanistan and the interim Taliban government is not doing enough to curb them. And so all of that is really reflecting on the way possibly Pakistan is treating now the Afghan refugees. But the point is right now, whatever you see between these two countries, whatever you see happening with regards to Afghan refugees in Pakistan has a lot to do with the bad relationship between Kabul and Islamabad. You know, considering that Afghans uh, you know, are the primary target here, I mean, how has the Taliban government in Kabul responded? Oh, they're not happy. Uh, Pakistan is the main uh, commercial and economic outlet for Afghanistan. It's a landlocked country, as you know. So they're not very happy. And just yesterday, we had this very alarming incident at one of the crossings on the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan, where, according to Pakistani military statement, an Afghan uh, border security guard opened fire on Pakistanis entering Afghanistan. And a couple of people died. One of them is a 12-year-old. Pakistan did not respond open fire because, you know, according to the statement, they did not want more collateral damage. And that's the word they used. So it's a very, very tense situation. A lot of people here in Pakistan also are watching how Pakistan would really implement its its decision to expel people who do not leave voluntarily by the 1st of November. So how it's going to happen, it's a huge number. There are at least 1.7 million, as you said, I can tell you in four decades since Pakistan started hosting Afghan refugees, never did we see the kind of tension we see right now between these two countries. Have you heard from undocumented migrants, particularly Afghans, that are going to be in, impacted by this? I've been uh, for over a period of time speaking to many of them, actually. And you have to understand one thing. I mean, four decades of Afghan refugees in Pakistan, we have... We have at least two or two, to three generations of Afghans actually uh, residing in Pakistan. Many of them know Pakistan as the as the only homeland. And uh, you know, I met kids, uh, Afghan children of Afghan refugees, who are enamored with the country. They would like to join the Pakistani police, the Pakistani military, work in the Pakistani media. So there's a lot of uh, closeness, so to speak, between these two countries. A lot of things that are common. It'll be fascinating to see how Pakistan really manages to disengage from Afghanistan after four decades. That's Ahmed Qureshi, who is in Islamabad. Thank you very much. Thank you, A.
Last year, Michigan voters passed Prop 3, which enshrined abortion rights in the state constitution. But that doesn't guarantee access, and obstacles such as a 24-hour waiting period remain. Democrats want to repeal these restrictions, but as Michigan Radio's Kate Wells reports, the effort is in jeopardy. Dr. Hallie Christman is an OBGYN at the University of Michigan, and she would like you to see if you can figure out the maze of forms her patients have to navigate to get an abortion in Michigan. Use Google. Try to figure out what you're supposed to print. See if you get it right. Because every day I see patients who have driven five hours for abortion care and they haven't gotten it right. Here's how the forms work. You search for something like Michigan abortion consent forms. And on the state website that pops up, you're going to click on a link that says for patients. That link will take you to another page. And it has information on fetal development, abortion coercion, summaries of abortion procedures. You are going to have to sign a form saying that you have reviewed all of this, including the 19-page pamphlet on pregnancy and parenting. Finally, there is a link that says finish. And this is a crucial part of the process, so pay attention. Clicking finish will automatically generate a signature form with a date and timestamp of the exact minute that you clicked finish. You are going to need to print this form and bring it to your appointment. And the timestamp must be a full 24 hours before your appointment begins. Otherwise, under Michigan law, your appointment has to be canceled. But it cannot be more than two weeks before your appointment. Or again, your appointment has to be canceled. To have patients look at me and say, doctor, why are you stopping me from getting the care I need? The answer is that Prop 3 made access to abortion care a right in Michigan, but these laws remain on the books. Democratic Party leaders want to change that. They have introduced the Reproductive Health Act, which would repeal all the paperwork and the 24-hour waiting period, and it would also allow Medicaid to pay for abortions. Republicans oppose the legislation, but Democrats didn't need them. For the first time in decades, Democrats have the majorities in Michigan. And then, suddenly, they learned that they were short by just one vote. It's State Representative Karen Whitsitt, who is a Democrat. What is an additional 24 hours to wait to be able to have a termination? Whitsitt is okay with a mandatory waiting period because she has been there herself. I've been raped. I've gone through the process of trying to make the hard decision. I did the the 24-hour pause. I did all these things that everyone else is currently going through. Whitsitt represents parts of Detroit and neighboring Dearborn. And she says her constituents do not want Medicaid, state tax dollars, paying for abortion. People are saying, I agree to safe and accessible. I agree to reproductive health, but I never agreed to pay for it. Democrats don't have the numbers to pass this without Whitsitt. And they have launched a public pressure campaign to get her to change her mind before the end of the legislative session this year. In the meantime, Dr. Christman, the OBGYN from earlier, has a request. I wish Representative Whitsitt could sit with me and tell a patient to their face, no, we can't provide your abortion care today because you printed the wrong page on this 24-hour consent. Or no, mother of five trying to make ends meet and feed your kids. You can't use your Medicaid to pay for abortion care. Because I don't want to tell patients that anymore. What is happening in Michigan shows how even when voters support abortion access, actually making abortions easier to access is a whole other fight. For NPR News, I'm Kate Wells in Ann Arbor, Michigan.
This story comes from NPR's partnership with Michigan Radio and KFF Health News. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. And Ocean State Job Lot, whose charitable foundation strives to make a positive impact on its communities. More at OceanStateJobLot.com. Fog this morning, and it'll start out mostly cloudy today, but skies will gradually clear and we'll see sun this afternoon. The clouds return tonight, and it'll be in the low 60s, then a mostly overcast Friday in the low 70s. Right now, it's 60 60 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Thursdays at Harvard. With Carpenter Center for the Visual Arts 60th Anniversary, Artist Talk by Pope L., an opening of This Machine Creates Opacities, tonight at 6. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. This is Lisa Mullins. Support from our listeners does more than pay for WBUR's journalism. Your support makes editorial independence a reality. And it all starts with your gift of 10 or maybe $15 a month. Those ongoing monthly contributions are how we pay for independent journalism. Sustain the journalism that sustains you. Start your monthly contribution at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Thanks. This is the Fall Fundraiser on WBUR. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi here with Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering. We are in a critical situation and we're coming to you to ask for help. We are behind. This fundraiser ends tonight. We still have a third of the way to go to get to our goal. We need you to act. If you've been waiting for that moment to swoop in and save us, that is now. And, you know, that happens, actually. You believe us when we tell you we make these goals for a reason. They are calculated to keep us at the level of service listeners have made possible and you expect. And when we tell you that we're not where we need to be, and we're running out of time. You have rescued us consistently. We need need you to do that again today, especially now when there is a 50% match on the table. Other listeners have put their money down. They've agreed to match 50% of whatever you give. They know you care about your impact for WBUR so much that this will drive you to give right now. Act on that impulse, please. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And here's Tiziana. So we've got sort of the macro and the micro, right? The micro, this is the moment because it's the last day of this fundraiser. And we've only got a couple of hours left on this 50% match. It'll be gone by 10 or when the money runs out. And frankly, my money's on when the money runs out (laughs) before 10 o'clock because we believe you will step up now. And that's the macro. We need news, local news, national news to be strong. This is the moment when you need us to be there for you. You can get information lots of places, but what about quality information? Mm -hmm. And companionship. That's right. What about fact-based journalism? What about the stories that help you understand the world around you? Because you care about that, we are asking you I'm asking you to be the one who helps us close that gap at 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. A small gift from you is transformative for us. 
When NPR first came on the air, a set of principles guided our work. NPR will serve the individual, promote personal growth, regard differences with respect and joy rather than derision and hate. NPR will provide listeners with an experience that enriches and gives meaning to the human spirit. NPR will explore, investigate, and try to interpret issues of the day so listeners might better understand themselves, as well as governments, institutions, our world. NPR will be trustworthy, enhance intellectual development, expand knowledge, and increase the pleasure of living in a pluralistic society. NPR will be a service to listeners that makes them more responsive, informed human beings, and responsible citizens of their communities and the world. And that's still our purpose, work we do with you and for you. And we can only do it with your support. So please donate to the station today. You heard there the original mission statement that we seek to carry out every single day. We know we need to bring you factual, unbiased journalism weighed against our ethics in the appropriate context so you can wake up every morning and be confident that what you're hearing on the radio is what you need to know in the context that you need to know in an ethical way told to you. You make everything possible here at WBUR. Listeners are the largest share of our funding. We, you have done that because this is the service that you value. You want it in your lives every day. This is when we come back to you to say we need your help to keep us going. That's how our model works. Voluntary contributions. And generous listeners gave WBUR their money to math, match your monthly contribution. It's only on the table until 10. They're putting 50% more money on top of your support. That is a crucial way that you could help us right now when we are still trying to make up a third of our goal before this fundraiser ends tonight. If you've been waiting for the right moment, this is it. Please help us get where we need to go and relieve some of our stress and rescue us in our moment of need. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thank you so much. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of z Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. The commercial shipping industry, under pressure from new rules, is looking for cleaner ways to move global goods. Massive cargo ships powered by fossil fuels are a big contributor to human-caused global emissions. NPR's Scott Newman reports some shipping companies are turning to wind power. The 750-foot Pixis Ocean is a far cry from the majestic clipper ships that once plied the world's trade routes. Mostly, the bulk carrier is the same as thousands of others. But there is one obvious difference, a pair of massive rigid wings towering over the deck. They're designed to act much as sails, but are used in tandem with the ship's engine, giving it a boost to save fuel and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. It's called wind-assisted propulsion. Jan Dieliman is president of Cargill Ocean Transportation. So you have this wing that is composed of three elements, right? So it's, it's very close to what you see on an airplane. That airplane wing, stood on edge, is larger than a Boeing 747's. 
Cargill, which leases the Pixis Ocean from owner Mitsubishi, tapped UK-based Bar Technologies to develop these wind wings. The concept was inspired by the rigid sails on modern America's Cup racing yachts. But Bar CEO John Cooper says it was a challenge to re-engineer that idea for a massive cargo ship. The hydrodynamic drag of these 300-meter vessels is humongous. The commercial shipping industry accounts for an estimated 3% of the world's carbon emissions each year. Recently, both the European Union and the International Maritime Organization have implemented new rules to crack down on ships with high CO2 emissions. The IMO has set an ambitious goal to cut the shipping industry's carbon emissions at least in half by 2050. Matthew Collette is a professor of naval architecture at the University of Michigan. There's significant pressure on ship owners to figure out ways of reducing fuel consumption. Currently, there are around 30 large commercial vessels using a variety of wind-assisted technologies. Big names, such as Maersk, are among those testing the waters. And more are on the way. I think there's a good competition between these technologies. One idea, invented a century ago, has gotten renewed attention in recent years. It uses large cylinders instead of wings. They're known as Flettner rotors, and Colette says they're being used on several ships. Flettner rotors have the advantage of being relatively simple, but effective in a narrow range of conditions. The more rigid sails would be more effective over a wider variety of wind conditions, but they struggle sometimes in terms of complexity. The payback on wind-assisted propulsion is likely to become more attractive in the coming years. Gavin Allworth, head of the International Windship Association, says fuel oil used by most ships today is still relatively cheap. But to get to reduced carbon emissions goals, alternatives will be needed. The costs of the new fuels that will be coming, you know, ammonia, hydrogen, methanol, the green options for those will be three, four or five times more expensive than the existing fuels. So far, most of the ships, such as the Pixis Ocean, have been retrofitted with these systems. But that's quickly changing. Ship owners are increasingly placing orders for vessels built from the keel up with wind-assisted propulsion. Again, Cargill's Dilemon. What we did here was a retrofit, right? It's a standard ship that we just put a sail on. It's not a sailing boat, so to speak. And we have two wings, and we think if you can put three on, on a wind-optimized ship, the models are saying that on average you should be able to get to 30% of savings when you're sailing. Wind-assisted propulsion may be a modern take on an old technology, but Dilemon says with a new premium on steady winds, it could mean a resurgence of some of the old sailing ship routes. Scott Newman, NPR News. Support for NPR's Climate Week, a search for solutions, comes from Proven Winners with Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs, offering a varied selection of species to bring year-round interest to landscapes and gardens. ProvenWinnersColorChoice.com slash Native Shrubs. WBUR supporters include Good News Garage, over 5,500 donated cars given to New Englanders in need since 1996. Tax deductions and free towing, goodnewsgarage.org. WBUR built a multimedia reporting team to provide serious, deep, compelling coverage on one of the most important issues of our time, the environment. 
Changes to our climate pose serious threats to our communities, our health, and our planet. These threats aren't off in the distance, they are happening today, all around us. To maintain this team and this coverage, WBUR depends on you. Specifically, we are asking for your financial support. I'm Martha Biebinger. A contribution of $10 or $15 a month will have a big impact. Here's how you can help. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Rupa Shanoi here with Tiziana Deering as part of our fall fundraiser. We are considerably behind. The fundraiser ends tonight. We still need to get a third of the way to our goal. We need you to act now when there is a 50% match that will increase your impact. It's important that you join the community of listeners who support WBUR and make sure we can bring you the news you depend on into the future. And to Martha's point, think about just what you've heard this week, this whole week, we've brought you a series on climate solutions. And that it's a really innovative kind of fresh focus that seeks to empower you, which is something that we know that you want. You have told us that we are coming back to you with solutions that you can put into effect so you can have an impact on the climate. You heard that every single day this week. That is important news that you depend on, that you get every day, but it comes at a huge and constant expense. We need you to act. Listeners are the biggest share of our financial support. That makes you very powerful right now because what you do right now really matters with this match on the table. You can, just by acting now, increase your impact for WBUR when we need you the most. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. A $10 a month gift becomes $15 a month for an entire year. A $20 a month gift becomes 30 That small, relatively small amount of money is tremendously meaningful for us, especially as we have pivoted substantially in this era of climate change to make sure our journalism is ready to bring you what you need. Here's Meghna Chakrabarty of On Point talking to you about how journal our journalism has pivoted to cover climate. I think people more and more want smart, brave, and almost plain-spoken conversations about solutions, because most of us agree about what the problem is. And now people want to do something. And they want to do something not just on the global or or national level, because we know what those targets are, and that takes a lot of political will. But people also want to know more about what they can do locally. So we did this fascinating conversation about the idea of carbon removal, about actual machines that could be part of a future climate solution that would sit there. They look like giant air conditioners, essentially, and they'd suck carbon out of the atmosphere and return it to the ground. Lots of complications around a a solution like that. But it was fascinating to think about, like, what are the edges that we can lean into and, and push our knowledge further, push our ability to find solutions further? And that's just one example. Yesterday on Radio Boston, we had Miriam Wasser, our senior climate reporter, talking about being down at Vineyard Wind, the first big offshore wind installation in the country, reporting on how it's happening right here, right now, Mm -hmm. Rupa. Because you value that, we're asking you to get in on this 50% match. Help us close the gap in a fundraiser that is critical and in which we are significantly behind. You 
make the difference. I am asking you to be the one who makes the difference. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. I was also thinking about Paula Mora's uh, reporting this week about uh, how some communities are turning to natural solutions to deal with flash flooding. These are what the stories that you need to hear. There are so many aspects to the issue to the subject of climate change that are evolving, that are popping up all the time. We keep track of those for you. We're reporting on them right now. We're planning to bring them to you, but we can only do that if our funding, if our goals are met. So we need you to act now when there is a match on the table. It's only on the table until 10. Start your monthly gift at whatever level is right for you at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And we are so grateful. Thank you so much. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA, Art from the Caribbean and Beyond, in a groundbreaking new exhibition. On view now, ICABoston.org. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. This year's Nobel Prize in Literature has been awarded to Norwegian author Jon Fasse. The Nobel Committee says Foss's innovative prose and plays give voice to the unsayable. Anders Olsen is the chair of the Nobel Literature Committee. While he is one of the most recognized and widely performed playwrights of our time, he has also been acclaimed for his novels, narratives, and poetry. Foss's work, Septology, collects three volumes and is considered among his greatest achievements. It was a finalist for the International Booker Prize in 2022. Two House Republicans say they will run to be the next speaker. The number two in Republican leadership, Steve Scalise, is seeking the job. So is the co-founder of the House Freedom Caucus, Jim Jordan. He is also the chair of the Judiciary Committee. NPR has learned the Pentagon has warned U.S. lawmakers that they urgently need to approve more aid to prevent a disruption in the flow of weapons to Ukraine. NPR's Tom Bowman has more. Defense officials have told Congress they've all but exhausted current aid to Ukraine. There's less than $2 billion left of the $26 billion in aid already approved. The Pentagon says without funding now, it may have to curtail military assistance to Ukraine, such as air defense and ammunition. Congress has failed to vote on a White House request for another $24 billion in military, economic and humanitarian assistance. President Biden, meanwhile, said there's another means of funding, but declined to offer specifics. Tom Bowman, NPR News. A federal appeals court will hear arguments today on whether Texas can keep the 1,000-foot floating barrier it installed in the Rio Grande. Texas Public Radio's Dan Katz reports it's part of a showdown between the Biden administration and Texas Governor Greg Abbott. Governor Abbott ordered the spiked buoys to be placed in the Rio Grande near Eagle Pass in July in order to stop migrants from crossing in large numbers into the remote border city. The Biden administration sued, arguing it's a public safety and environmental threat, posed diplomatic issues with Mexico, and is an overstep of the Republican governor's authority. A federal judge agreed, but the order to remove the buoys was put on hold by the conservative Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. One of the judges on today's panel previously served as chief counsel to Abbott. 
For now, the spiked buoys still bob down the middle of a section of the Rio Grande as heavy migration continues in the Eagle Pass area. I'm Dan Katz in San Antonio. Separately, the Biden administration is preparing to quickly build new sections of a border wall in southern Texas. The administration is moving to waive more than two dozen federal laws to do this. President Biden had promised that he would not allow any new construction of border wall during his presidency. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. After two years of debate on Beacon Hill, tax cuts are officially here in Massachusetts. Governor Maura Healey signed a $1 billion tax relief bill into law yesterday. WBUR's Zeninjor Mwameka reports the law includes a number of measures to help businesses and individuals. If you're a renter, parent, caregiver, senior, or low-income resident, you'll get more tax credits and tax breaks. Businesses will get a simpler corporate tax structure and credits for workforce development. Investors will see cuts on short-term capital gains. Governor Maura Healey says there's a lot for everyone in this law. The important thing here now having signed this into law is to make sure that it's implemented and then people know what they can take advantage of as we move towards April of, of 2024. The law also includes deductions for commuters, assistance for farmers, and incentives to spur more affordable housing development. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. Boston's health commissioner is calling for reforms to close the stark racial disparity in infant mortality rates. New data from the Boston Public Health Commission finds the mortality rate for black newborns is triple that of white newborns. The city's overall infant mortality rate is below 1 percent, which is lower than the national average. There's a push on Beacon Hill to lower the stakes of the MCAS standardized test. Supporters of that push say results are closely tied to student income and shouldn't come with such serious consequences. WBR's Max Larkin reports on a hearing held yesterday. You can't get a high school diploma if you don't pass the 10th grade MCAS, and districts that struggle notably on the test are at risk of state takeover. The so-called Thrive Act seeks to change that by using the MCAS only as a diagnostic tool. State Auditor Diana DiZoglio spoke up for the bill, saying that 25 years in, reliance on the MCAS hasn't enriched or equalized public education. And it is beyond past time that we stop allowing this one test to be the ultimate judge of educational achievement. At Wednesday's hearing, a few critics warned that the proposed change would lower standards in many public schools. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Nurses at Beth Israel Leahy Anna Jake's Hospital have authorized a strike. Unionized nurses at the hospital in Newburyport authorized a three-day walkout if they cannot reach a new contract with management. Nurses there say they are among the lowest paid in the region. There's been no response yet from Beth Israel. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Museum of Fine Arts Boston, presenting Fashion by Sargent, highlighting over 50 of John Singer Sargent's paintings, alongside dresses and accessories featured in his work. Explore how Sargent used fashion to realize his vision in an exhibition that asks, Who Creates Your Image? Opening October 8th, 
Tickets at MFA.org. The New England Revolution fell to the Columbus Crew 2-1 to last night in Foxborough. In exhibition hockey tonight, the Bruins will visit the New York Rangers. Morning fog and clouds will give way to sun by this afternoon. It'll be in the 70s, cloudy overnight with a low around 60. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with a chance for morning showers in the 70s. Right now it's 60 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. Truth, independence, fairness, transparency, respect, excellence, NPR. Donate. Thanks. Some amazing key words there that describe what you hear absolutely every single morning. No matter what happens, you know that you can go to 90.9 or WBUR.org or go to our app or ask the smart speaker to play WBUR and you will get consistent, high-quality news in the context you need to know it in. So... When we think about that, we think about fundraisers because that is our model. That is how we make it continue to come to you. What the message that we need you to hear this morning is that we are behind. We are not where we need to be. Not enough of you have called in or gone to WBUR.org to give. We still have a third of our goal to go before this fundraiser ends tonight. A group of listeners have offered to match whatever you give right now, 50% to add to your impact. And they're hoping that just that incentive of having more impact for WBUR will make you come to the table right now when we need your help the most. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Morning Edition here, host Rupa Shanoi, here with Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering. Good morning, and what an invitation. Hey, Come join me at this table. We both care about WBUR. We care so much. We're going to add to your money. You give $10 a month, we're going to make it $15 a month. You give $20 a month, we'll make it 30 Hey, you can do a one-time gift of $500, we'll make it $750 for WBUR. And if you can do $2,500, we'll make it $3,750 to fuel what we all rely on for WBUR. It's an act of community. It's an act of shared commitment. Other members are inviting you to become transforming, sustaining members for the thing we all care about, all of us, us too, (laughs) which is the quality news and information, the understanding of your neighborhood, the joy of greater Boston that we are committed to bringing you here on WBU. It's why we do what we do. It it is. It honest to God is, Rupa, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Every day. Every day. And we're just asking you to pick up the phone now at 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org, and make something small and meaningful for you that will be transformative for us. We are counting down. We are have a match on the table. It's a 50% match. It is only in place until 10. So that gives you an hour and 50 minutes. Sounds like a lot of time, but it's going to go really fast. It you does. Know, yeah, you know how the mornings work. One thing comes up, another thing comes up. Maybe you have a minute right now. Start right now. And it'll only take a minute. We need your help when there is this match on the table to meet this one-third goal before the fundraiser ends tonight so we can continue to bring you service 
at the level that you expect. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And just think of all the kinds of stories and events and um cultural information that it makes possible, right? You've heard about COVID, long COVID and COVID vaccines. You've heard about um, the growing number of migrants here in Massachusetts. You Last night, Steve Inskeep was at WBUR City Space with Meghna Chakrabarty. You want to talk about firepower. Mm -hmm. All of it we bring to you. All you have to do to keep it going is give $10 a month and someone else will make it 15 Yep. 1-800-909-9287 is the phone number. The website is WBUR.org. We are behind. Today is the last day. We need to make up a third of the goal in a single day. But we can. We know we can. Yeah, because it's and, happened before. That's right. And these other listeners are saying, let's do this together. What an invitation It's the time to ask you to be the one who steps up next. Time is running out in so many ways. We only have until 10 for this match. We only have today to make up make up the gap to, to our goal. And we have these goals because we know what we need to bring in right. in order to continue to bring you the news that you expect. We want to be there for you. We need you to help us get there to be there for you. Help us now when your gift will be matched 50%. $100 becomes $150 for a year. That adds up really fast, especially now when we're in a moment when journalism has never mattered before. Local journalism is disappearing. You have made WBUR possible. We need you to continue to make us possible. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thank you so much. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. The race is on to find a new Speaker of the House. That's right. Following Tuesday's historic vote to oust Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republicans are scrambling to figure out who can get the votes to replace him. So far, there are two declared candidates, House Majority Leader Steve Scalise of Louisiana and House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh is following this. He's joining us now. Deirdre Scalise Jordan, two of the more well-known GOP House members, but give us a quick profile of each. They're both very conservative. Jim Jordan founded the far-right House Freedom Caucus. He developed a reputation sort of as an outsider attacking his own leadership, but he did end up developing a close relationship with Speaker McCarthy. He's been leading all the investigations into the Biden administration and impeachment. He's also close to former President Trump. Scalise is currently the number two leader. He's well-liked by members. He's actually personally gone through a lot. He was shot at a practice of the House GOP baseball team back in 2017 and almost died. More recently, he announced he's being treated for multiple myeloma of blood cancer. He says he's feeling better and he's up to the job. Scalise ideologically is also considered to the right of McCarthy uh, in terms of how conservative he's considered. There's a third candidate, Oklahoma Republican Kevin Hearn, who may run. He heads a large group of fiscal conservatives. All right. So more names I'm sure might come up between now and next week. But do Republicans like their options so far? Some do. A lot won't say. It's part of a challenge in these leadership races. These are secret ballot elections. There's also a lot of concern about avoiding another messy fight on the House floor. I'm sure you remember the one back in January. It took four days and 15 ballots to elect McCarthy. 
The other thing is just in the last seven years, there's been three changes at the top of the GOP leadership ladder. One House Republican member I talked to, Kelly Armstrong from North Dakota, said this time is not a normal speaker election. There needs to be some discussion about getting around these internal divisions. This has happened three times now. Boehner, Ryan, McCarthy. And the solution to that problem can't be just promote everybody one step. That's not it. Many lawmakers, even before they pick a new speaker next Wednesday, want to talk about changing House rules, including the one that was used to get rid of McCarthy. Now, Congress just passed a bill to avoid a shutdown, but, uh, you know, the House is paralyzed right now. Temporary funding runs out November 17th. Uh, No money for Ukraine, Deirdre. How will all that be affected? All of this chaos in the House leadership is going to make it a lot harder to get money for Ukraine approved and much harder to avoid a shutdown next month. There is bipartisan support in terms of Ukraine in both the House and the Senate for sending more weapons, uh, more humanitarian aid. But House Republicans are deeply split on this issue. Just last month, more than half voted against more money for Ukraine. Jim Jordan was one of those, and he argues it's just not a priority for him. The most pressing issue on Americans' minds is not Ukraine. What would you it is start- the border situation and it's crime on the streets, and everybody knows that. Senate Republicans who support money for Ukraine are already worried and trying to figure out a way to get it approved. In terms of avoiding a shutdown, it's really hard to see how a new Republican speaker is going to want to reach across the aisle to pass a bill with Democrats, especially after what happened to McCarthy when he did that. Yeah, we'll find out who gets the job. That's NPR's Deirdre Walsh. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Vice President Kamala Harris is among those expected to attend today's memorial service for the late Senator Dianne Feinstein. The service, originally open to the public, has now been closed due to increased security. But as KQED's Scott Schaefer reports, mourners got a chance to pay their respects to the former San Francisco mayor at City Hall. A string quartet played on the steps of the Grand City Hall Rotunda Wednesday as public officials, former staff members, and ordinary citizens filed past a flag-draped coffin. Among those in line was Erica Moreno, who brought her three daughters, all too young to know much about Feinstein. I would like my daughters to know that she was a trailblazer and that when you have tenacity, big dreams, and willingness, you can accomplish all. She was a good role model for women and girls. She was an excellent role model, and I just hope that my daughters can look back at this when they're in their 20s and really understand the power of what this moment is going to mean for them. San Franciscan Paula Farmer said she came to show appreciation for Feinstein's five decades of public service. Just really acknowledging the trailblazing work that she's done from her inception of being the mayor and going on to the Senate and all of the fine work that she's done over the years. It's just been an amazing run. And no matter the conflict that people have as her last years, I think that the work that she did outweighed all of that. 27-year-old Andrew Shia wasn't even born when Feinstein took office after Mayor George Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk were assassinated in 1978. But he appreciated what she did for the city. I just remember that her long Senate career especially and her contributions to um, San Francisco when she was mayor in terms of gay rights, in terms of transit, um, a lot of it really impacts all of us um, even in the present day. Yeah, like without her, I don't think we'd have cable cars or the streetcars today. Among the first to pay homage to Feinstein was House Speaker Emerita Nancy Pelosi, who has known and worked with Feinstein for decades. She was a person of greatness. She was a stateswoman. She was a national figure. But she was as personal as the poorest person in our city. 
She always cared. Pelosi, who's politically more liberal than Feinstein was, joked about their differences. She and I were not on the same place on the political spectrum, so we had uh, our fun with it all. Uh, but from a personal standpoint, my family loved her. We were neighbors, we were friends. Pelosi will be among those speaking at Feinstein's memorial service today, along with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and a recorded message from President Joe Biden. For NPR News, I'm Scott Schaefer in San Francisco. The Darien Gap is a treacherous stretch of jungle that bridges South and Central America. And despite a U.S.-backed deal with Colombia and Panama to end the illicit movement of people along this route, crossings have spiked to an all-time high. Reporter Manuel Rueda recently visited the northern edge of the Darien in Panama, where he spoke with some of those who have made the journey. Bajo Chiquito is a small indigenous village built along a river. It's the first place migrants arrive at after making the hazardous trek across the Darien jungle. Here, hundreds of people standing long lines under the blazing sun as they wait to register with Panamanian officers who give them transit permits. This is horrible, says Valeria Ponte, a Venezuelan migrant who had been in line for two days. There are no numbers or anything, and they believe we'll lose our spot. While some wait in line, others are nursing their injuries. Delvis Davila has a swollen ankle and limps along with the support of a stick he found in the jungle. I don't wish this journey upon anyone, he says. I saw the bodies of about eight people who had drowned crossing rivers. It can take anywhere from three days to a week to make the trek across the Darien jungle, depending on the weather. Many people are robbed along the way and others get sick. Dr. Ariel Garibaldi oversees the clinic in Bajo Chiquito, which consists of two rooms and a patio that serves as a waiting area. I've treated pregnant women who are bleeding because they lost their babies, he says. There are also many people with stomach illnesses who have really bad cramps, and even folks who have been attacked by African bees. Despite these risks, the number of people who are crossing the Darien has hit a record high this year. According to Panamanian officials, more than 400,000 people have trekked across the jungle on their way to the United States so far. Nearly 85,000 in August alone. Many are Venezuelans who are on the move for the second time, after struggling to rebuild their lives in other South American countries. Douglas Muñoz says he had been living in Ecuador for three years. With my wife, we had bought equipment to start a business, he tells me. But then the economy slowed down and gangs began to ask for extortion payments. It was becoming just as bad as Venezuela. Officials in Panama say that the transit of people across the Darien has become increasingly sophisticated. Reynel Serrano is a brigade commander for Senafront, Panama's border police. Outside his base, he showed me four pickup trucks that were confiscated from smugglers who were charging Chinese migrants $1,200 each to take them across a VIP route that involves less walking. They're benefiting from people's desire to look for a better life, he says. We cannot allow this. Some say that the policies of the U.S. and Mexico are increasingly forcing migrants into this route. Juan Papier is the America's deputy director at Human Rights Watch. The number of people crossing the Darien Gap used to be much lower. But then Mexico imposed visa requirements on Venezuelans and Ecuadorians, amongst others. 
this was apparently a decision pressed by the Biden administration in the United States. And this meant that the migrants who used to take planes to Mexico to seek asylum in the United States are now forced or pushed to cross through this very dangerous jungle. Papier says that if safer alternatives are not found, the number of people crossing the Darien jungle will continue to rise. The situation in Venezuela continues to be dire. The situation in Haiti is deteriorating day by day. And the violence and crime in Ecuador is forcing many people to leave that country. The Biden administration has tried to divert migrants away from the Darien jungle by opening three offices in Colombia, where asylum seekers can apply for permits that will enable them to fly to the U.S. But only 3,600 applications have been approved since June. Meanwhile, hundreds of people continue to pass through the village of Bajo Chiquito each day. After they register with officials, they catch small boats that take them on the next leg of the journey to the United States. We have to do our best for our families, says Venezuelan migrant Delvis Davila. I can't spend the rest of my life working for almost nothing. For NPR News, I'm Manuel Rueda, in Bajo Chiquito, Panama. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, whose charitable foundation strives to make a positive impact on its communities. More at OceanStateJobLot.com. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Misinformation is having a profound impact on our country. We need strong voices that tell the truth and deliver the facts. WBUR amplifies those voices, and its strength is listener support. Monthly contributions to WBUR ensure that hundreds of thousands of listeners get information they need to make critical decisions every day. Not a monthly contributor yet? You can make a meaningful difference at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Mary Louise Kelly right there. I am such a fan of Mary Louise Kelly. Yeah, Robin, talk about a strong voice. I know. Robin Young was here yesterday recalling how she told Pompeo. Pompeo told her, can you find Ukraine on a map? And she's like, bring me a map. I'll Boom! show you. Yeah. <laughs> This is what I, I, Mary Louise Kelly is there every morning. We are there every morning. We are the people who represent you, who ask the questions for you, who find out what you need to know for you and bring it to you every morning in context. You have the confidence to know that you need that the people who need to be held account to account on your behalf are being held to account. That's what we do here at WBUR. So I'm going to pause and say good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. I'm here with Tiziana Deering. We're in our fall fundraiser. This is the last day of our fall fundraiser. Mary Louise Kelly was also talking there about how you guard against misinformation. That is WBUR. That is what we do for you every day. But again, we need you to step up now. We are behind. I buried the headline. I should have led with that. I apologize. We are behind. We still have a third of a way to go toward our goal. This fundraiser ends tonight and we need to make that goal or we won't have what we need to bring you the news that you expect. We only make up that gap with you. When you act now, you Whatever you give will be matched 50%, but only in the next 
hour and a half almost. But it's going to go fast. That's how mornings are. So you, if you have a moment, take that moment for WBUR. It will give WBUR a stable future. One minute for you is a whole future for us. Any gift will be matched. Small, we know times are tough. Whatever you can spare, show your commitment to your community that it doesn't waver even during tough times. Support WBUR. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I got to step out of the way because Tiziana wants to talk. Well, I really was going to put the number and the website out. Yes, Again, thank you. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. As Rupa just said, Last day, final hours, 90 minutes left on this match. And I want to emphasize what has happened here. Other listeners have said, hey, join us. Come to the table. We're serious. Now is the moment. And so we will put money on the table asking you to put money on the table. $10 a month from you, we'll make it 15 for a year. $20 a month from you, we'll make it 30 for a year. Hey, you want to do a one-time gift of $1,000? We'll make it $1,500. That is muscle. It's muscle behind mm-hmm. your money, and those contributions put muscle behind our reporting. And right now, it's critical that we do that. You know, Rupert, you said holding leaders to account. We'll have Senate President Karen Spilka on at the top of the hour mm-hmm. and on Radio Boston today talking about the tax bill. First time in 20 years we've passed tax relief in the state. We'll be talking about that. So many times you turn to us to make sense of what's happening in the world. Other listeners and we all together are turning to you, you, this morning, today, and saying, we need you to help us close this gap. And those listeners are saying, this is so serious, we'll put our money on the table to ask you to help us do it. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. What you mentioned there, Spilka, talk, coming on to talk to you about the, the new bill that was passed. I mean, I want to know. I know that that is supposed to make Massachusetts more affordable, but that's a big headline. Like, can you break that down? That's what you're going to do for us today. Right. All I have to do is listen. And I know that I will be fully understanding by the end of your interview, like, how this is going to impact me. That is an important service that comes to me for free, that comes to you for free. But it's not really for free. It costs a lot of money. And this is when we ask you to help us. Right now, there's only 90 minutes to go. We need you to act right now while there is a match on the table. And we have a ways to go before to make up our goal before the fundraiser ends tonight. Listeners are our lifeline. You are our lifeline. You fuel WBUR. This is when that happens. We need you to start a gift, a monthly gift or a one-time gift. We need you to get it matched. We need you to go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287, and you will have so much gratitude for us. Thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Sony Pictures Classics, presenting Strange Way of Life, the new English-language short western by Pedro Almodovar, starring Pedro Pascal and Ethan Hawke, starts tomorrow everywhere, only in theaters. From the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at WTGrantFDN.org. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Ukraine's president is in Spain today at a summit of more than 40 European leaders. That's where Volodymyr Zelensky is urging them to support Kyiv with aid as Ukraine's counteroffensive against Russian forces moves closer to the winter months. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz are among those at the talks. President Biden says he worries disarray in Congress will make it more difficult to continue U.S. aid to Kyiv. Here's NPR's Deidre Walsh. There is bipartisan support in terms of Ukraine in both the House and the Senate for sending more weapons, uh, more humanitarian aid. But House Republicans are deeply split on this issue. Just last month, more than half voted against more money for Ukraine. Jim Jordan was one of those, and he argues it's just not a priority for him. Jordan and House Majority Leader Steve Scalise are among those running for House Speaker to replace the ousted Kevin McCarthy. A vote is expected next week. This year's Nobel Prize in Literature has been announced. The Nobel Prize in Literature for 2023 is awarded to the Norwegian author Jon Fosse for his innovative plays and prose which give voice to the unsayable. That's Mats Malm with the Royal Swedish Academy. Jon Fasse has written dozens of plays as well as novels and children's books. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Governor Moore Healy says she's distressed to learn that veterans had their hotel reservations canceled in Foxborough in order for those hotels to house migrants. The veterans say they booked the hotel in advance of the Army-Navy football game at Gillette Stadium in December. Hotel management says migrants are being housed at hotels in the area. They say they're working to relocate guests. Healy is telling her Veterans Services Secretary to reach out to anyone affected. State and federal health officials are urging people to get vaccinated against respiratory diseases this fall. The head of the CDC repeated that message yesterday at the Whittier Street Health Center in Roxbury. Dr. Mandy Cohen says the COVID vaccine is still the gold standard for protecting yourself and the community. The COVID vaccine is one of the most studied vaccines in history. We've given out 600 million doses plus of that vaccine. It's safe, it's effective, and we just want folks to be protected this this winter. Cohen expects availability of pediatric COVID vaccines will improve over the next week or two. A new skyscraper in downtown Boston has become one of the largest office buildings to receive an energy efficiency certification. To achieve the so-called passive house design, the Winthrop Center passed multiple tests. WBUR's Paula Mora explains. The Winthrop Center's walls and windows insulate the building efficiently, so it uses 65% less energy to heat and cool compared to similar buildings. Christopher Jeffries is the co-founder of Millennium Partners, the building's developer. He says the biggest challenge was installing big view windows that are also thick enough to insulate the building. But he urges the industry to adopt these practices. Buildings do account for a significant portion of the overall climate problem. There's no reason why it can't be fixed. It is now feasible from an engineering perspective. Buildings represent about 70% of carbon emissions in Boston. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moura. It's 834.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Huntington Theater, kicking off their thrilling new season with Joshua Harmon's Prayer for the French Republic, now through October 8th. Tickets at HuntingtonTheater.org. The New England Revolution lost to the Columbus crew 2-1 to one last night in Foxborough. It was the Revs' first loss at home in a year. The Revs' next game will be Saturday on the road against Orlando City SC. Highs in the upper 70s today with some fog this morning. Then mostly overcast skies will gradually clear. Tonight it grows cloudy again as it falls to a low around 60. Tomorrow we end the week with a mostly cloudy day and a high in the low 70s. Right now it's 60 degrees in Boston. You're WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the Walton Family Foundation. Working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Falden in Washington, D.C. The Nobel Prize in Literature has been awarded to the Norwegian playwright, author, and poet, Jun Fosa. The committee said the honor was for, quote, his innovative plays and prose, which give voice to the unsayable. NPR's Andrew Limbong is with us now to tell us more. Hi, Andrew. Hey, Leila. So tell us about Fosa. So yeah, like you said, he's a Norwegian writer. Uh, he's written novels and poems, essays, uh, <laughs> and even even uh, some stuff for kids. Uh, but it was his work as a playwright that the Nobel Committee really focused in on at, at the announcement this morning. He's written about like 40 plays, and he was really prolific on that front from the 90s through the early 2000s. Um, his plays lean more towards like the modernist experimental type of stuff. Uh, <laughs> he gets compared to like Samuel Beckett a lot in that mm. respect. Um, but Fosse's plays, you know, a lot of, and a lot of his works are really interested in spiritual concerns. Um, I've got some tape here from Anders Olsen, the chairman of the Nobel Committee for Literature. Uh, and here's what he said about Fosse. It is through his ability to evoke man's loss of orientation and how this paradoxically can provide access to a deeper experience close to divinity. So sometimes this award goes to someone super well-known in the U.S. I'm thinking people like Bob Dylan. Other times it's someone <laughs> mm-hmm. not well-known. Where's Fosa on that spectrum? You know, I, I, I think he's somewhere in between. He's a huge name, right, in the theater scene in Europe, and he's been one for like decades. And his work has been translated into dozens of languages. But, you know, his theater work wasn't produced in the U.S. until like 2004. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's got a number of international awards on his shelf. You know, he was shortlisted for the Booker Prize twice. Um, but here in the U.S., he isn't really well-known outside of, like, mega literature fans. Mm. Uh, but he has gotten some props from the lit community. Uh, last year, his book, Septology, was a finalist for the National Book Award for Translated Literature. Um, it's, it's, it's one of those big, long, epic books, right? It's, like, seven, seven volumes. And it's about an right. old man coming to terms with, like, God and his life. And it's written in this stream-of-consciousness way, you know, a, a style of writing that's really dependent on, like, the rhythm of the language and, and how it flows. Um, and at the reading ceremony, he read really quickly in his native Norwegian. But here's the book's translator, Damien Searles, reading the English version, where I, I think you get a sense of that. Then I hear Bragi bark. Mustn't forget the dog, Oslake says. Yes, Bragi, he says. 
That would have been bad, I say. And I go open the back door of the car, and Broggy hops out, and I slam the door shut, and then I go over to the boat. And Broggy follows me, and he looks scared of the boat, and then I pick him up and hand him to Oslike. And Broggy whines and whimpers and whines. And Oslike takes him and puts him down on the deck, and Broggy lies right down, and then he's lying there, shivering and looking up at me with his scared dog's eyes. And you can hear from like the repetition of that language, you know, Broggy, the dog, and all that methodical like movement of the action, uh, a sense of his writing style. And really quickly, this Pulitzer, this prize, it means yeah, it'll Hebel's, be yeah. more widely read. Oh, I mean, probably. I mean, just like just anecdotally, even before this announcement, I've seen Septology take up, you know, a really prominent <laughs> space at the at the bookshelves at the the local bookstores. Yeah, it's one of those like big books that you kind of like brag about reading. Uh, so I suspect that Nobel sticker on it uh, will lead to more people reading him, and probably some more of his plays being produced and, here in the states. NPR's Andrew Limbong. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Layla. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The gap in household wealth between black and white Bostonians was breathtaking, and that was before the pandemic. So has the pandemic made that even worse? Nicole Obi, president and CEO of the Black Economic Council of Massachusetts, joins me now to talk about that ahead of the council's annual Mass Black Expo this week. Good morning. Good morning, Rupa. So your group was formed after a 2015 Boston Fed report found that a white household in the city was had a wealth of nearly $248,000 compared to $8 for a black household. Do we know at this point how the pandemic has affected that? Absolutely. The pandemic, of course, really highlighted the vulnerability of the black economy here in Massachusetts. So we had many of our businesses, which are often very small, they failed uh, during the pandemic uh, because uh, they just don't have the scale or the access to capital to get through a crisis like other businesses were able to do. So we see we see a lot of businesses that are still slow in their recovery from the COVID crisis. And do we know how they're recovering as compared to other businesses? Oh, the pace is much slower than other businesses, um, just because, again, um, a lot of our business owners that were able to survive had to do so through accessing their own personal lines of credit, friends and family who were also in similar situations, um, and just really still digging out of the crisis. We even still see that the black unemployment rate, while it's improved, is still twice as high as our, our white peers here in Massachusetts. So the recovery is still pretty slow. The cost of living in Boston is very high. People of color are especially struggling to buy homes. Does that have a disproportionate impact on black businesses and black communities? Oh, absolutely. Things like high housing costs, transportation issues really put our business owners at a disadvantage to continue to grow and scale their businesses. Their workers can't get to work. Their workers can't live close to where they're employed, which makes challenges, especially because so many of all of our families are dealing with child care issues, elder care issues. So we have to solve the housing transportation issues, um, not just for our black business owners, but for the entire Commonwealth to be able to remain a competitive player. The Expo this week is an annual event for you. How does it play into 
all of your goals. So the theme of our expo this year is Building Black Wealth. It's also the mission of our organization, and it's the work that we do every day. So this three-day event is inextricably linked with everything that we do. And so we're really excited to showcase not only the Black businesses and entrepreneurs, but also our allies that are working with us in this space to create Black wealth, because the Massachusetts tax. Foundation study recently found that if we're able to close the wealth gap, we can grow the Massachusetts economy by $25 billion in just five years. And the way to do that is through building black wealth. And so we're really excited to to have people come out and, and join us. Nicole Obi is the president and CEO of the Black Economic Council of Massachusetts. Thank you so much. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brigham and Women's Hospital. For expert, research-based obstetric and gynecologic care, turn to Brigham and Women's, specialists in women's health with the latest innovative treatments for complex conditions. U.S. News ranks Brigham and Women's number one for obstetric and gynecologic care in the country. Brighamandwomens.org. And Lessons in Chemistry. Oscar winner Brie Larson stars as a chemist who hosts a cooking show, proving life doesn't follow a formula. Streaming October 13th on Apple TV+. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. The journalism you get from WBUR depends on a strong foundation of listener support. And that's why your monthly gift is crucial. Make a modest monthly contribution that will have deep meaning and a big impact every day. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Daryl C. Murphy, their host of our podcast, The Common, our daily podcast, and one of the many ways we're delivering the news to you in all the formats you expect them to come in these days. We have broadened our reach to meet the moment as media has evolved so much over the recent years. Listener support helped us do that because listeners know we're in a time where journalism has never mattered more. Your support has never mattered more. There is a 50 percent match on the table, but only for the next hour and 15 minutes if the money lasts that long. And it's going quickly. People are stepping up. They're responding because we are telling you, frankly, that we are behind one third of the way behind. We need to make up that ground before the fundraiser ends tonight. You value what you hear on W. UBR, like the interview you just heard about the racial wealth gap in Boston. You care about issues like that. You want us to keep you updated on them. We need your help to keep that coming. Raise your impact for WBUR now when you help us close this gap and get in on this 50% match. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Rupa Shanoi here with Tiziana Deering. Good morning. You know, it strikes me whenever we go to that little break, the first sentence is, we are funded by you, our listeners. Mm -hmm. The reason that's first is that you are first. You make up the largest share of our funding. We rely on you. Today's the last day of our fundraiser. We are, as Rupa said, significantly behind. We were more significantly behind yesterday. You've started to close the gap for us. Help us finish it. And it's so important that other listeners have stepped up this morning and said, we're going to put some of our money on the table. Meet us here. 
meet us in the middle, let's all do this together. But only for the next hour and 15 minutes. It's a 50% match. $10 a month from you becomes $15 a month. $20 a month from you becomes 30. If you can do just a $1,000 gift, a single $1,000 gift, it becomes $1,500 for WBUR. It goes on, right? $500 becomes $750. The point is, whatever you can do, other listeners will add on to. It will transform us, and we're asking you to do it now. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. It's a very simple formula. Our strength equals your support. What you give, what you do right now in this moment, it decides our future. It decides what we can continue to bring you in the future. And you know that the cost of everything has gone up. Our money just isn't going as far as it used to even a few months ago, honestly. And everyone is experiencing that, including us. We need your help to make up this gap. We still have, again, a third of our goal for this fundraiser needs to be made up before it ends tonight. We need to make up that goal in order to keep our level of service to you at the same level into the future. We want to be there for you. We need your help to get us there for you in the future. And help us now when your gift will be matched 50%. Time is running out. I'm not so great at math, but an hour and 13 minutes. I think that's what it is. I know you're doing other things in your morning. You're probably rushing and and picking up your wallet and looking at your phone and getting where you need to be in the morning. As you're thinking about that, think about how we add to every morning and support that because we know that we are there for you every morning. We need you to be there for us, especially now when we need you the most. The number is 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. We're asking you to do it now. Don't wait till the end of the day. Don't even wait till you get to your next destination. Meet the other listeners who have put this match on the table. Meet them in the middle now. Step up for WBUR because you rely on us. Think of everything we do for you. We want you to be able to take us for granted. And in order to be able to do that, a little monthly gift will go such a long way. one 800 at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fort Point Arts Community's Open Studios event featuring free performances by Boston Lyric Opera on Saturday, October 14th at Midway Studios. Visit fortpointarts.org for more information. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Martinez. Election officials in Virginia are scrambling to add back voters who were mistakenly removed from the rolls. The issue centers on people with felony convictions in their past. Here's Ben Pavier with member station VPM. When Elizabeth Shelton pled guilty to robbery in 2019, her prison sentence was suspended. No time behind bars. But the crime was a felony. And in Virginia, that means she'd lost the right to vote. It's a very odd thing to explain to someone who's never had their rights taken away, but it makes you feel like not a real citizen. Virginia is the only state where people convicted of any felony automatically lose their right to vote unless the governor restores it. And that's what happened to Shelton in 2021 under former Governor Ralph Northam. As soon as I had my rights restored, I registered to vote. I was really excited. Shelton cast her ballot in the next few elections. Then, last year, she says she got a letter from her local registrar saying she'd been removed from voter rolls. State officials told her she'd had a new felony conviction. Shelton knew that was incorrect. She'd only had a probation violation. But the whole thing scared her off. 
I'm not taking any steps until I have something in writing saying that, yes, your rights are restored. You know, I, I'm still terrified, honestly. Shelton is one of an unknown number of people in Virginia who are mistakenly removed from voter rolls after probation violations. The Department of Elections initially said they were following the law. But earlier this week, a department spokesperson said people with probation violations had been, quote, canceled in error. The spokesperson says they're working to add those people back to voter rolls. And state police say they'll no longer provide the names of people with probation violations to elections officials. But Democratic State Senator Scott Suraville says the department needs to reassure voters like Shelton. I'm concerned that the Department of Elections went and monkeyed around with the plumbing of our voting infrastructure without fully thinking through the consequences of what they were doing. For Suravel, this issue is part of a broader pattern under Governor Glenn Youngkin. Since taking office, the Republican has been more reluctant than his Democratic predecessors to restore rights to people convicted of felonies. Youngkin's office declined to comment on the voter removals. Early voting in the state's legislative elections is underway. Youngkin's agenda, including a push for election integrity, hinges on his party's ability to flip Virginia's divided legislature. For NPR News, I'm Ben Pavier in Richmond. We have some news exclusive to NPR this morning. Comic Roy Wood Jr., a high-profile correspondent on The Daily Show, says that he will not return to the program when it begins airing new episodes in a few weeks. The news may come as a surprise to some fans who saw him earn praise as a guest host on the show in April. Here he is talking about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas accepting gifts from wealthy friends. If you're going to buy a Supreme Court justice, why would you spend all that money for Clarence Thomas? You could have bought Brett Kavanaugh for a bottle of Jaeger and a Southwest Body Pass. Wood spoke with NPR's chief television critic, Eric Deggins, yesterday about his plans, and he's here to discuss it now. Hi, Eric. Hi. Okay, so Wood is one of The Daily Show's highest profile correspondents. Why do you say he's leaving? Well, the show's been looking for a new permanent host since Trevor Noah left the job late last year. The writer's strike shut down the show in May, and that likely delayed the search. The program has announced that it's coming back to new episodes on October 16th, but Wood has decided he doesn't want to work on the show as a correspondent if somebody else will be the permanent host. He'd rather use the time to figure out what he wants to do next. Now, Wood spoke to me by cell phone while he was heading to catch a flight. Let's listen to his words. So there's no sense in me doing what I've been doing for the last eight years while concurrently trying to think of a new thing to do. The job of correspondent, it's not really one where you can really juggle multiple things. And I think after eight years, I think I've earned the right to just, you know, take a quick break before January. So what is Comedy Central saying about all this? I mean, did they consider offering him the permanent job and might they offer it to him now? Well, I asked those questions of a spokesperson for The Daily Show. They sent along a short statement which read, in part, quote, Roy Wood Jr. is a comedic genius and beloved teammate. We thank him for his time with us and can't wait to see what he does next. Mm. Now, Wood told me he doesn't know if he was considered for the permanent job, but if they were to offer it to him, even now, he'd have to consider it. If you're offered the chance to host The Daily Show, at any point in your life, you have to stop for a second and consider that. I think the next question becomes, what does The Daily Show look like in 2024? What does late night look like? That is a huge question that I believe personally has to be answered. 
Now, the trade magazine Variety reported that former Daily Show correspondent Hassan Minhaj was a leading candidate for the job. Did that affect Wood's thinking? I think so. Uh, Now, Comedy Central hasn't publicly confirmed that story, and Variety reported the cable channel, quote, is going back to square one in its search after reports surfaced that Minhaj had fabricated and exaggerated autobiographical stories in his stand-up specials. But Woodstead, the stories led him to reassess his own situation, though he stressed that Minhaj remained a good choice despite his current difficulty. Has Woodstead what he might do next if he's not staying with The Daily Show? Well, he's currently doing stand-up comedy tour dates. He did stress that he doesn't hold a grudge against Comedy Central, which he credits for giving him lots of opportunities outside of The Daily Show. But at a time when diversity seems to be shrinking in the late-night TV space, I think he's hoping for an opportunity to bring forward his own vision in a way that might be different than what we're seeing on current shows. That's NPR TV critic Eric Deggins on Roy Wood's decision to step away from his job as a correspondent on The Daily Show. He has a story about Wood on NPR. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fulton. Enemy Martinez. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Solar Gardens, supporting local clean energy and accessing the benefits of solar power through off-site solar fields. Learn more at solargardensma.com. And AE Events, design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. Some fog this morning, and we start out mostly cloudy, but skies will gradually clear, and we'll see the sun this afternoon. The clouds return tonight, and it'll be in the low 60s, then a mostly overcast Friday in the low 70s. Right now, it's 60 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include the ICA, innovative new art by Boston-area artists, in the 2023 Foster Prize Exhibition, on view now, icaboston.org. This is the Fall Fundraiser. I'm Rupa Shanoi, here with Tiziana Deering. You only have a little more than an hour to get in on a 50% match. We know you're busy, but we're asking you to act right now because we are not where we need to be for this fundraiser. We only in the We are only two-thirds of a way toward our goal. That last third is crucial, and the fundraiser ends tonight. So we're in the last few hours of the time we have to come to you and say, we need you to give in order for us to have the money we need to bring you the reporting that you expect, that you depend on. We need you to help us when we need you the most. Right now, when your gift will be matched 50%, but that's only on the table until 10, and the morning... Keep, in the, keep this in mind. The morning sets the tone for the day. You start the momentum, and you're doing it. You're calling in. You're getting us there. Be, you are being part of making WBUR possible. So be part of the wave of support that's building now that will help us make up this gap and get us where we need to be before this fundraiser ends tonight. When we make this goal tonight, it will be because you called right now. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And here's Tiziana. I'm motivated now. So <laughs> so listen, I tried to get the station instead of a match to change the weekend weather forecast if you called in in the next hour, but they wouldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, that's the point, right? Nothing, nothing will stop this station, WBUR or NPR, from reporting the truth. 
and reporting the facts. We are beholden to no one, no donor, no commercial, only you. But because of that, we also rely on you. And in this moment, we are asking you to be the next person to grab that phone, pick up the cell, however you want to do it, one 800 909 9287 or WBUR.org and accept the invitation from other listeners to meet them right now. They've got money on the table. They're asking you to put a little bit down. They'll make it bigger. $10 a month becomes $15 a month. $20 a month becomes $30. If you can do a one-time gift of $1,000, they will make it $1,500 to WBUR, but only for the next hour. It will make a huge difference to us. You have no idea. A small amount from you on a monthly basis transforms what we can do. But do it now. Get us across the finish line and meet the challenge of these other listeners who have said, hey, we're talking to you. You know how important this is. We do too. We're putting some money on the table. Join us. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Local journalism depends on local support. That is you. Again, we are considerably behind compared to where we need to be. Our deadline is looming. And usually here among news people, we're comfortable with deadlines. We know we're going to meet them. But right now we need you. To meet this deadline. So if you think about how you can make a, a difference as an individual, if that is a goal for you as a person, this is an incredible opportunity, especially now with this 50% match. Your monthly gift matters. Whatever you can give will help us. It Small gifts have a big impact over time. We will be grateful that you are committed to showing support, even when maybe things aren't as great as they usually are. You will continue to show your commitment to your community by supporting WBUR. If you're in a place where you can give a bigger gift, your $500 gift becomes $750 for us for a year. A $1,000 gift turns into $1,500 for us. $2,500 turns into $3,750 to help fuel our journalism. That is math. That is literally the future of WBUR. You make it possible when you call now. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. The match is on the table for the next hour or until the money runs out. I'm rooting for the money running out. You can make it happen. Accept the invitation from other listeners to sustain this station. 1-800-909-9287 and WBUR.org and thanks. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds, salemstate.edu graduate. And Ocean State Job Lot, whose charitable foundation strives to make a positive impact on its communities. More at oceanstatejoblot.com. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.